Good morning, everyone. Thank you for that prayer, Gord. It's a, a really good prayer to get our hearts and our minds focused, actually, on Ecclesiastes chapter 8, which so happens to be a chapter about how to live biblically, how to live wisely under imperfect or sinful authority, under imperfect and sinful justice or injustice. And I know if you're following along, we only did the first part of chapter 7. I know I'm skipping a bunch of chapter 7, but we're kind of flying over the book of Ecclesiastes fairly quickly. Um, It's probably the gain dial that you want to turn down a little bit to get rid of that echo. (laughs) Sorry, our sound person isn't here this morning, so we're getting by. Um, So we have... uh, we're going to fly over the book of Ecclesiastes fairly quickly through the summer. We just have 11 or 12 lessons. And so uh, we have a, a structure of thought and of message for the book that, that after we fly over it quickly, hopefully you can then dig into it more deeply personally. My, my hope in this series is that if you felt that Ecclesiastes as a book was either too daunting or too depressing or too difficult to tackle on your own study, then this series would give you a framework in order to help you see the practical wisdom for living as people of God in this present world under the sun. And then with that framework, you'd be able to dig into more detail to the book, because there's a lot in Ecclesiastes. And, and what we see is that in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's at times makes the darkness feel all the darker so that the dawning light of the gospel shines all the brighter. And so there are sections of Ecclesiastes where Solomon is intentionally painting a bleak picture of life so that we understand our need. So moving into chapter 8, Solomon is, uh, who calls himself Koalath, or the teacher, or the preacher, he has another lesson for us on how to live the life that we find ourselves in under the sun. And in chapter 8, if you want to turn there or tap there on your phones, he, he offers a short transitional proverb in verse 1, and then he begins tackling a very practical and significant reality that, as I mentioned, Gord's prayer touched on directly. He's dealing with the daily frustration and tension of living life as God's people under imperfect authority and experiencing on a regular basis imperfect justice and consequences, both in our civil life and in our sort of natural life. And then Solomon tacks on some final verses and an admission, a confession, a humility that in dealing with all of this, we also have imperfect knowledge of what the greater purpose of God is. Solomon says at the end of the chapter, we don't know what God is doing in the midst of all this, uh, you know, imperfect authority and imperfect justice. And so Romans chapter 8 is about how we live as God-fearing people with this reality. And you can substitute the word limited authority and justice or the limits of human authority, the limits of human justice. You could talk about fallen authority or sinful authority, sinful justice. You could substitute any of those words basically as synonyms of what Solomon is talking about in chapter 8. As believers, we're not immune to any of these problems. We feel the pain of imperfect or sinful authority and imperfect or sinful justice systems. We feel them as keenly or more so maybe than others because we are called to live as heavenly citizens in human kingdoms. And so we live with the consequences of incompetence and abuses in government and political systems. We know that criminals who should be brought to justice are acting free from arrest or prosecution. And at other times, we see that innocent people are wrongly harassed and convicted 
convicted, and certainly many innocent people are treated unjustly by what are supposed to be equitable social systems. And we also regularly see that wicked people and wicked ideas receive the reward and accolades of our culture, while righteous people and good values are treated as though they are oppressive or evil. We see this problem that Solomon sees in chapter 8 every day. And so the question of the chapter is, how does a person who fears God live wisely under imperfect authority, imperfect justice, imperfect consequences? For us today as Christians, how do we reconcile belonging to a heavenly kingdom while we live under fallen earthly authorities? How do we share God's heart for justice on one hand, but also his heart for humility and peace? How do we live civilly in society as Christians? These are significant kind of ground-level questions for how we're going to live as Christians and how we are going to walk uprightly in the place where God has called us to live. Now, it's a big text today, but I'm basically just going to chunk it out in two parts, authority and justice, and unpack it relatively quickly, and then see what the rest of Scripture has to say about it. And we'll just pray before we open God's Word, because we need the wisdom of the Spirit to guide us through this text. Father God, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit that guided the writing of Solomon as he wrote this book, the the guiding uh, of our own hearts as we read it to understand that it's by your wisdom and by your illumination that we have understanding for how to live for you. And we pray for these blessings on us this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So first of all, we have imperfect civil authority. That's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure, for there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death, and there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied in my mind to every deed that has been under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So let's try and bring ancient Hebrew wisdom into modern English instruction. In essence, Solomon is saying there's a normal posture, there is a normal stance towards civil authority that the teacher expects the wise, and those are people that fear God, to adopt. And simply put, he starts out, he just says it flat out. He says, obey the king or follow the law, because authority is in place by the oath or covenant of God. Now, now in Solomon's context, for Solomon and for Israel, this was very evident because the kings of Israel were literally the kings of Israel under the oath of God. But we can't wave this off or this instruction off because we don't have a king or our government is not established under God because all governments are established by God. And that's why this is the first principle of civil obedience to believers, In Daniel, for instance, uh, 2.21 says, It is he, that's God, who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to men of understanding. 
Or in Psalm 75, we read, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another, talking about powers in the world. And so it's God who ordains all governance. And Solomon says it is because of God's ordination of authority that we should obey it. Paul says in the New Testament, in Romans 13, this is under Jesus as born-again Christians with the Spirit that he's speaking to, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And so back here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon warns us. He says, obey the king, and he says, don't be in a hurry to leave or to abandon the civil authority. Don't join in an evil matter. Don't join in a plot against the king. God ordained the civil authority, and that authority is usually impossible for normal people in the normal course of a godly life to oppose. Who's going to tell him, what are you doing? Who's going to stop the king from being the king? And Solomon says it's just unwise, and later on he actually says it's evil, to participate in insurrection simply for the sake of insurrection. The futility of opposing a monarchy or an emperor was the idea of their absolute power. That's what Solomon's talking about. Of course, in the context of today in a democracy, you may think, well, there isn't all this sort of dictatorial power residing in one ruler the way Solomon is talking about it here. And that's true. But today, I think the futility that Solomon is talking about of of opposing an emperor or a king is, is not so much because of the dictatorial power that resides in one ruler, but because now the futility is that you are now fighting in a democracy against the entire society, the entire civilian population that voted that government into power. And so we, we understand that the actions of a democratic government are broadly reflecting the political and social will of the whole country. And so it's actually harder now to change a country by overthrowing the government. I mean, you used to be able to just get some rebels, overthrow the king, take the palace, and you started making laws, and you could make the country the way you wanted it. It's actually harder now in a democracy to do that because... You have to ch- if you want to change Canada, you have to change the hearts and minds of tens of millions of voters because they are simply putting in power the people that reflect the values that they want. You can't change society simply by overthrowing parliament. What is the point of scheming to gain secular power and winning a civic election so that you and your party can somehow pass laws that millions of ungodly voters oppose? They will either ignore the laws and act how they want anyway, or they will fight your government all the way to the Supreme Court if they need to, or they will simply remove you in the next election. It's futility, Solomon says, to fight the government with government. You cannot fight imperfect systems with an imperfect system. It's like trying to use wind to restrain the wind, he says. It's fighting futility with futility. Now, there's a practical side to all of this. Solomon says in verse 5 and 6, if you follow the law, you won't have have undue trouble from civil authority. A wise heart knows there's a right time and a right way to engage with authorities, and so don't make useless trouble for yourself. Solomon says there's a time and a way to enjoy life, even in times of difficulty, even under troublesome civil authority, even though it may lay heavily on your shoulders, he says. Even if the government of our day is restrictive and it lays heavily on our shoulders, the teacher would have us normally live at peace with the civil authority that God has ordained us. 
If we go back to the Apostle Paul and his instruction to the church in his letter to Rome, the, the government that the Apostle Paul encouraged his Christian friends to obey in chapter 13 of Romans was, you guessed it, Rome. Do you think that the Roman government did not lay heavily on the shoulders of Christians? Paul lived under Tiberius and Claudius, and then he was executed under Emperor Nero, the guy who made Christians fighting lions into a spectator sport. But Paul never started an insurrection. There's no evidence that even Peter picked up another sword after he cut that guard's ear off and Jesus had to heal it. Even Peter laid down the sword against the governments. Christians are not normally meant to be rebellious agitators simply for the sake of rebelling or resisting or casting off the oppression of civic government. We are to be aware of and to know the proper time and the proper way for civic engagement. And as Paul stresses in 1 Timothy 2, 1-2, our main job with regard to the government is to pray. He says, first of all, then, I urge you that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's, that's either, I'm not sure exactly, the precise date that Timothy, well, it was near the end. Of, it's actually almost one of Paul's last letters. So Paul's probably talking about Nero at this point. Pray for Nero, that guy who burns Christians like torches in his garden. Pray for him. That's our job as Christians. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 10, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. You see, in Ecclesiastes 8, Solomon acknowledges that authority can be exercised over another to their harm, but it doesn't change that we are to engage wisely, carefully. To the same disciples, Jesus said, pay the Roman tax, pay the temple tax. Even though you are not under Roman authority, you're under God's authority. Even though you're not under the Sanhedrin's authority, you're under God's authority. Pay Caesar what Caesar is due, pay the temple tax. Be good citizens. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves as you engage with the world that God has sent us into. Jesus goes on after that to say, You will also be victims of injustice. The religious will flog you, and you will be dragged before magistrates and kings for my sake to bear witness to them and unbelievers. It's plain that the Christian is called to be wise, to be aware, and if for some reason we end up in a confrontation with civil authorities, then we are there as witnesses of who Jesus is and who we are as Christians. We are not there to pick fights with kings and kingdoms for the sake of personal freedom or to somehow gain a civic or social power, which is, Solomon says, futility in itself. Trying to restrain evil with evil gets you nowhere. You cannot use evil to be free from evil. You cannot use futility to restrain futility. But I know what you're thinking. It's not that simple. What, what do we do when we have to choose between obeying God or government? And yes, the disciples, and as disciples, we will need to examine the whole counsel of Scripture in terms of how we walk rightly as Christians under sinful civil authority. We can't just look at this verse or that verse. We have to look at the whole Bible. And the Bible does teach us. It gives whole books in some cases as examples of how to live as God's people under 
sinful authority. You have books like Daniel and Esther and even Jesus and Paul, which we will touch on later in this message. But Solomon is not delving into the depths of every nitty-gritty detail of how to oppose this system or that system of injustice. He's saying that the normal practice of normal Christians as we walk in society is to obey the government, pay our taxes, be good citizens even when that authority seems to be to our harm, even when it is a government that is not very godly. The teacher and the rest of Scripture as well is clear. Civil authority is under the ordinance of God. Live as peaceably as you are able under that authority and be wise as a serpent about how and when to engage with that authority. But it isn't just governments, and it isn't just higher authorities that Solomon has in mind here. He says that we also live in a world where there is imperfect justice. It's prevalent around us at every level, both civic and natural consequences. He goes on in verse 10. He says, So then, I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. There is futility which is done on earth, and that is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and on the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I say that this too is futility. (laughs) What does Solomon see here? He sees that it's not just kings and emperors and democracies and injustice and civil authority. He sees that wicked people have lived their lives in peace. They've even come and gone from the temple their whole life until they die and are buried and nothing ever happens to them. No justice. He doubles down on the futility of it in verse 11. He says, the judicial system is too slow. Sentences never seem to come. And when people see that there are no consequences to the evil doing, they are tempted to do evil themselves. Apparently nobody's getting caught or punished. Why shouldn't I do it? I mean, everybody else is driving 120. I should be able to do 130 with no problem. It can be little things like that. You know, all the other kids stick an extra candy bar in their bag when they buy gum, and they always get away with it. Or I don't have to claim the cash transactions on my taxes. The government doesn't know what the government doesn't know. I can hide that mistake from the building inspector. He doesn't know I, needed, I did the electrical wiring myself, and I'm incompetent. Just drywall over that. No harm, no foul. Or it can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum of injustice, the untouchable career criminals at the political or corporate level, the drug dealers, the gangs, the warlords, the human trafficking that Gord prayed about that just never seems to be able to be conquered to have justice done. But not only does Solomon see that the justice system is flawed and imperfect and sinful, in verse 15 he makes a reference to the seeming lack of even natural consequences to the people who are wicked. The righteous in the world seem to get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked seem to get what the righteous deserve. What are we to do with this? There's a strong parallel in Solomon's inquiry into this with King David's songwriter Asaph. And it's interesting because Solomon is David's son. Asaph was once David's writer. So Solomon and Asaph very likely knew each other, probably hung out at the palace. 
Asaph might have even been some of Solomon's investigation into this issue of injustice, some of the people he interviewed to confirm what he observed. And in Psalm 73, Asaph writes, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. He's like, I almost lost my footing here, morally. (laughs) For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat and sleek. That's a good thing in their day, to be fat. And he continues on describing in Psalm 73 all the advantages that the wicked seem to enjoy, but then before the psalm is over, there's a conclusion to his meditation on the wicked, and he writes at the end, but when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my spirit until I came to the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end, and surely you, God, set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction." You see, Asaph saw what Solomon saw. The wicked seem to prosper, and we can be deeply discouraged by that as believers. We can wonder, where is God acting in the world if the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Until we go into the house of the Lord, until we go to the Word of God, until we put our frame of reference under God's sovereignty, and then we see the end of the wicked, that they cannot lengthen their life even by one extra day and how it will not go well for them when this life ends. They stand on slippery ground before God. In the New Testament, Jesus teaches the disciples in John 5 that a day is approaching when the wicked will be resurrected into judgment. And Paul says in Romans 12, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, this is what Asaph saw. God ultimately is the judge. And we, as believers, Jesus says, wait for the day of judgment. It's coming. Paul says, don't repay evil with evil. Don't avenge yourself. Vengeance is God's. It is coming. Do not be discouraged. Do not be dismayed when you see the wicked receiving what you think the righteous should receive. Whatever posture we take in the face of injustice, it begins with remembering the sovereignty of God over all kings and authorities and over all justice and consequences. Solomon and Asaph see the final destination of wicked people, and it will not go well for them. And that is what Solomon and Asaph rest on. It's what the hearts of Christians rest on, is that God is sovereign over these things. Now, it's worth noting here in this issue of justice that Solomon does not give an imperative. He does not command one sort of action or another to us in the face of injustice like he did with the king. He said, obey the king. But in this instance of injustice, he doesn't give a direct command to Christians. It is a subtle conversation about what is the right thing to do when we face injustice in the world. And this text in Ecclesiastes does not mean that Christians always just sit on their hands and do nothing at all. If we look at the whole council of Scripture, we'll find that in many other places that we are given imperatives. We are commanded as Christians to defend the defenseless, to lift up and bind the brokenhearted, to defend the widow and the orphan, to care for those that are suffering under injustice. But Solomon's not getting into that level of detail. He's talking about how a Christian is to think about and reconcile the reality of injustice so as not to be confused or discouraged by it, to replace what we might see as futility with hope that isn't found in human justice. It isn't found in human authority. It is found in divine authority and godly justice. 
So Solomon gives a conclusion. He says, So I commend pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and drink and be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. Now, I don't think it's an accident that Solomon's conclusions sound like Paul's conclusions in Romans 12 and 13 and in 1 Timothy. Paul says, live peaceably, pay your taxes, respect authority, lead a quiet life. That's the normal posture of a person who fears God. Well, all of that was by way of introduction. I confess I will go about five minutes long today. I had one extra page and I just couldn't edit it out. If we step back from this text a little bit, we realize that what we're getting at in Solomon here, or what Solomon is getting at, is an overarching biblical reality that Solomon is addressing to the people of God. That most often, we are living in exile from our true kingdom. That's the friction that Solomon feels here. That's the tension that he is running into. We are godly people living in ungodly societies. And so we have to understand here the bigger biblical theme of how do we live as exiles. The idea of living under foreign and even hostile powers, it recurs several times through the Old Testament. And it's used to reinforce a larger spiritual reality for Christians in the New Testament. We are citizens of another kingdom who are temporarily living in exile under foreign kings and kingdoms, and we must live in the tension of belonging to the kingdom of heaven and serving our heavenly king while we are under the authority of earthly kings. God's people Israel were regularly living as exiles under the old covenant. And it's interesting that even in the reign of Solomon, which followed after the reign of David. This is literally the golden age of godly government. This is as godly a civic government as will ever be on the face of the earth. King David, then King Solomon, the temple, Israel in political power, military power. The law of Israel was literally the law of God. And even in that perfect, civil, godly union, Solomon writes Ecclesiastes, seeing the tension of being a person of God living under the sun. Because this is the reality. We are regularly living in a human world, although we are heavenly citizens. And so God knows this, and God regularly gave his people specific instructions on how to live as exiles. And these instructions apply to Israel, and they apply to us as Christians. We can go to Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent to exile, from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, you will find your welfare. First of all, note God's sovereignty again. He has put his people into exile. He has made us to be exiles in this world. That's a divine plan. And then note the instruction, live peaceably, don't disengage, build houses, eat, drink, stay faithful, multiply, don't decrease. In other words, don't get swallowed up by the culture, don't get swallowed up by the society that you are a part of, but still be a part of it. 
In fact, seek the welfare of that society so that it prospers and you do well. And again, pray for that society. We could see examples of how to do this with a lot of detail in the book of Esther and Daniel. In Esther chapter 2, while Israel is living in exile under the Persian Empire, Esther's uncle Mordecai uncovers a plot to kill the king, and he rightfully reports it, and he thwarts a plot that would have eliminated the very emperor that was enslaving his people. But I think Jeremiah, I think Mordecai understood Jeremiah. <laughs> Live at peace and look out for the welfare even in the city that you are exiled in. And this is long before Haman rises in power and plots against the Jewish people. But as it turns out, Mordecai following the teaching of Jeremiah to seek the welfare of the city of his exile actually sets himself and Esther up very favorably to deal with a future threat when it comes. In Daniel, we see peaceful resistance to oppressive laws, but we're not going to go into all that. And as I was writing this, I think there's another couple sermons on this whole topic of exile and civic government and how Christians engage. But let's bring it forward to us as followers of Jesus. How are we to be part of the city of exile to multiply and to grow to be in it but not of it? Well, Jesus talks about this too. In his priestly prayer to his disciples, Jesus establishes the exilic reality, the the reality of exile for all his followers. As as Jesus is praying his, really one of his last prayers to his disciples and what is on his heart for them, he says in John 17, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. They're exiles, they're foreigners just as I am not of the world. Disciples of Jesus are like Jesus. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, we're going to stay, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You see what Jesus is saying there. We are exiles. We have to learn how to live biblically under foreign authority and powers in the very face of imperfect authority and imperfect justice. We are called to live uprightly as disciples of Jesus, wise as serpent and innocent as doves, as a witness to who our Lord is. When we believe in Christ, we're not snatched up into heaven. When we are baptized, we actually come back up out from under the water, which The people being baptized on the 13th will be glad to hear. We don't stay under. You know, God doesn't just pick us out of the world into heaven and say, oh, you're not a citizen of the world anymore. I'm taking you to your true kingdom. He leaves us here, and we are exiles here. Just as Israel was exiled to Persia or Babylon, we are exiles temporarily in this world. And God deliberately plans this. He leaves us in the world as citizens of his kingdom, living under the power and influence of earthly kingdoms. And they come in all shapes and sizes and forms of imperfection or sinfulness or wickedness. There are Christians living under democracies with all the unique flaws that, and sins that democracy allows. And there are Christians living under communism and its special evils. There are Christians living under monarchies and in republics and under dictators and in criminal warlords and in countries that are literally in anarchy right now. There are Christians living under every kind of government you could imagine and no government at all. And we are all all exiles. There is no government for us on this world. If we are called as Christians to make disciples of all nations and in all nations, then inevitably Christians will live under imperfect and sinful authority all over the world and all through history. The message is is that that is just the normal 
Christian reality that Solomon recognizes, Jeremiah, Daniel, Paul, Peter, Jesus, everybody, everybody in the Bible teaches us of this. It is normal Christian reality that we will live in the tension and the frustration of being citizens of heaven that live in, as citizens of the world. But Jesus even says that this is a deliberate act of God. Actually, he says it's a deliberate act of Jesus himself. See there what I underlined? He says, I have sent them into the world just as you sent me into the world. It is Jesus who has deliberately sent us. When you send, it implies purpose. I send somebody to the grocery store to get something for me. I send you to the doctor's office to pick up my prescription. When we are sent, we are given purpose. The purpose is given to us by the person who sends us. However you want to word it, Jesus has sent us, left us, placed us in the world just as God sent him. So forget futility, Solomon. You want purpose? You want to find purpose? This is purpose. This is real purpose. Every Christian's life has a profound purpose of living as an exile under sinful governments and in civil, sinful society. Jesus has sent us as disciples to live in the world as he lived in the world. There is no higher purpose than to be sent by Jesus to live as salt and light under the authority and in the society that we are given to live in. We are not sent so that we can overthrow the culture or overthrow the government and replace it with some version of our own. We are sent so that we can be the grace and mercy and presence of God to other people living in the same sinful circumstances that we live in and lead these other citizens of the world to another kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. I mean, think about it. Who was more exiled than Jesus? Compared to heaven, was there a worse kingdom to be sent to than earth? You want to talk about exile, Jesus was exiled. And it's in Jesus that we have both a perfect example and a liberating power of how we as his disciples are meant to live in what Solomon saw as the sinful authority and the sinful justice that resides under the sun. Just think about it briefly in closing. Jesus navigated life, and he performed the most important God-given ministry under an unjust emperor during a military occupation, Rome, under Caesar. And Jesus said, if one of those Roman soldiers tells you to carry a burden for a mile, carry it an extra mile. One of those guys slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Jesus did this under secularized religion. The Pharisees were a long way from what God intended the law of God to be translated as. But Jesus says, pay the temple tax, but beware of the teaching. <laughs> Obey the authorities, but be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees, the teaching. So Jesus knows what it's like gave us the example of how to live and walk perfectly, walk rightly under unjust civil authority. Jesus faced the injustice and was condemned by a fallen civil and religious system. Do you think Jesus understands the corruption of the criminal justice system? 
whether it was Pilate or the Sanhedrin, the temple guard or the Roman guards, and yet he did not raise the sword as Peter did. He told Pilate, you only have the authority that God has granted you. Otherwise, you wouldn't have any authority over me. But Jesus was tried under both a religious and civil justice system that in today's vernacular did him dirty. (laughs) He ended up on the cross and Barabbas got sent free. You want to talk about injustice and natural consequences? Jesus received in his own flesh the penalty and shame of the wicked while the wicked received the freedom and adulation of the righteous. They said, we want Barabbas. (laughs) Give Jesus what Barabbas deserves. Give Barabbas the freedom that Jesus deserves. The thief on the cross told his buddy, he said, we're supposed to be here. This guy's not supposed to be here. We're hanging on the cross for good reason. He's innocent. You see, Jesus understands unjust civil authority. He understands injustice in the criminal System. He understands that the righteous receive the results of the wicked at times. But Jesus was able to do this in the full knowledge and confidence of the sovereignty of God's will and by the power of God who comforted and strengthened him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's weeping and there's blood coming from his forehead, he's under so much stress and his soul is in despair, God sends an angel to comfort him. It is by the comfort and power of God that Jesus was able to face the most wicked injustice of history. So then we have to ask the question, what about us? What about his followers? Are we to expect anything else in our life under the sun as we engage with civil authorities and legal authorities, with justice and injustice? Are we going to be greater than our master? Will we surpass Jesus and experience something better than he did? The amazing thing is, is we have what Solomon didn't. As we follow Jesus' example and teaching, and as believers, we have access to the same wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit given to us by Jesus. Solomon didn't have either one of those. How much more are we able to live then as exiles? How much more are we able to deal wisely and walk rightly with civil authorities? And how are we even more able to address civil injustice against others and against ourselves? While at the same time we are sharing the good news that no one needs to live in the futility of this hostile, sinful, earthly kingdom. Nobody needs to live in futility under hostile powers or wicked people, but we can live in hope right now, starting today, hope of freedom for the oppressed and hope of freedom against injustice and a future reward in Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross. You see, Solomon sees it all vaguely a thousand years before Jesus came, but he sees the glimmer of hope. That it's not going to go well for the wicked under God, and it is going to go well for the righteous. That's all Solomon knows. But Jesus says, you belong to a kingdom far greater than any earthly kingdom. And your fight is not with powers and principalities. It is not with the kings and kingdoms of this world. Your fight is a spiritual fight. It's a gospel-driven fight. And so we are to live wisely, and we are to live rightly under civil authority, and we are to act correctly in the face of injustice so that we can be light and life, and we can be salt and light to a world that is in darkness. Let's pray. Father God.
We thank you for your word. We thank you for this practical teaching of Solomon. I just pray that as disciples, we can apply by your Holy Spirit our minds to your word. And that as our hearts and minds are transformed by your word, we would know how to live in very complicated times. We would know how to act rightly and walk justly before you and before the world. Not so that we can somehow seize civil power away from others, but so that we can be a shining example of how to live godly lives in ungodly times. And that people might look and ask, and we would be ready to give an account for the hope that is in us, why we don't live in despair and futility despite the apparent despair and futility of civil and justice authorities. Father God, conform our hearts, conform our minds to your word. Yeah, that we would have your wisdom and not our own. And we would fight these powers and principalities that are really our enemy, the spiritual ones. And that we would fight them with the good news of Jesus Christ. We would fight them only with the resurrection testimony of your son and the power that he has over our lives and over this earth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.